Well, happy birthday, Veritas. It is, as we've already mentioned, our fourth birthday as a church family. We started four years ago, Sunday, September 11, 2016, at Ruskin Elementary School. There were a lot of new faces that morning. If uh, you were there, you would remember. Uh, But up to that time, we were uh, rolling deep with uh, about 30 adults. And between those 30 adults, we had um, 26 kids, all five and under. Just a a massive amount of kids. Um, And uh, it, it was a tough and joyous time. Many of you were fulfilling uh, demanding vocations, raising children, facing illnesses and moves and and various kinds of difficulties, and yet we were drawn together by the grace of God to plant this, this new community that seeks to declare and embody and display the kingdom of God in Dayton, Ohio. And uh, now it's our fourth birthday, and we're meeting uh, many new kinds of difficulties and challenges, aren't we? And challenges uh, we never even imagined we might face, not least of which is the fact that we are living in a world and in a culture wherein a sickness is running rampant. Uh, an illness is creeping into our place of, places of employment, our places of, of social interaction, our friendships, our, our homes, and our churches even. And this disease that I'm talking about is, is actually not COVID-19. This disease is the, the, the disease of division and factionalism and sectarianism and hyper-partisanism or whatever you want to call it. We live in a time and place where our, our, our country and our culture is increasingly atomized and fragmented. And what's worse is that so often Christians and churches follow suit. And so on our fourth birthday, I, I want to make a birthday wish together. I want to make a birthday wish together. If you would imagine a, a big cake is being brought out and it's got four candles on it, or uh, just one candle that's in the shape of number four. You know the, the kinds of candles I'm talking about. You've seen those. Uh, and uh, we are about to make a wish and blow this, this candle out, uh, but not really. You probably shouldn't blow on cakes right now, COVID and everything, but... We're just pretending. So we're, we're about to blow this, this, these candles out. Yet before we do, we're, we're going to make a wish. And our, and our wish is this. Our collective wish is this. That we would be a united church in divided times. That we would be a united church in divided times. And this is, this is actually part of our, our vision and values as a church. Our vision is to, uh, as we already mentioned, is to declare and, dis- and embody and display the kingdom of God. And Dane, we just mentioned that. And in part, that means that we would be uh, a community that so shares life together and loves one another that we would be uh, a testimony to a watching world that the God gospel is the power of God for reconciliation both to God and to one another. I want to be a testimony to that reality. And then our, and one of our values, one of the mistakes that, that uh, we want to be, we desire to be, we value being a countercultural community. And while our culture divides over various issues of opinions and issues of conscience, Continually turning every single issue into a partisan issue, we do not. We stand united 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of our diversity of opinions about matters non-essential to our faith. Part of being a countercultural community right now means being a united church in these divided times. But of course, what makes that, that vision so necessary and so compelling is not that it's in any of our church documents or not that it's on our website or whatever. What makes that so necessary and compelling is the fact that this is precisely what we're called to in Holy Scripture. And so we're going to take a little break from Amos this morning. And we're going to take a look at 1 Corinthians 1.10. 1 Corinthians one ten, And you can turn there. And when you've gotten there, you can stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Here, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And this community is a mess. So he's writing to address kind of various issues that are going on in the midst of this community. But the first thing he chooses to address is the fact that there's division, there's factionalism in their midst. And so he writes to them these words. Let's listen with reverence and joy. 1 Corinthians 1.10 I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your word, the clarity with which it speaks, especially to this issue here, calling us to be a united community in divided times. Would you help us to, to make Christ and him crucified central as the message that is of first importance so that we may truly not just be united positionally in him, but also experientially as well. We pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, look with me now as we see this, this call to pursue church unity for the sake of Christ. And uh, we'll just look at two brief points here. A pastoral appeal and a plea to agree. First, we see a pastoral appeal. The Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, right away, Paul writes this. We need to remember and see who he is. Okay, so Paul is an apostle. He's a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a representative of Christ. As he refers to himself in 2 Corinthians 5.20, he is an ambassador of Christ. That's why he writes to them here by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just some Joe Schmo. Okay? He writes as someone who carries the weight and authority of Jesus Christ himself as an apostle of Christ. But then notice, he doesn't throw his weight around as an apostle, does he? He he doesn't make demands upon the Corinthians here. He, he could do that, of course. But instead, he, he manifests something of the gentleness and humility of Christ. Instead, he says to them, I appeal to you, brothers. And it reminds me of, of Paul's disposition in his letter to his friend Philemon. In Philemon, verse 8, uh, Paul writes this. He says, though I am bold enough to, in Christ to command you to do what is required. He's saying, listen, I'm, I'm bold enough to use my authority as an apostle to command you to do something. But, listen, yet for, what, for love's sake, 
I prefer to appeal to you. He's, he's, he's taking that same kind of posture here with the church in Corinth. He could start giving demands and, and making commands, but instead, for love's sake, he appeals to them. And this word translated as appeal here gives us this picture of someone, not, not someone standing over you and kind of wagging their finger at you, but of someone coming alongside you as if I would come down off this pulpit and sit next to you and put my arm around you and try to gently reason with you. That's this, this kind of picture that this, this word gives us. He even calls the Corinthians brothers here. He, being an apostle, he's got authority. He could stand above them. He could command them. He could demand things of them. But instead, he comes to them with the affection and care of a sibling. And part of what I want us to see here is not just a, a pastor's appeal, but, but a, a pattern to adhere to. I can't help but think that maybe that's part of what Paul is, is doing here with the Corinthians. He's trying to, to demonstrate for them how to deal with, with conflict and with disagreements in their church setting. And as such, there's, there's an example for us here too, isn't there? Whenever there's disagreement amongst us, what, what's the kind of posture that we're supposed to take? Don't, don't, don't I, I plead with you, do not take your cues from the internet. Take your cues from the Apostle Paul. Sometimes we, we, we delude ourselves into thinking that, that there's something courageous and prophetic and virtuous in getting in fights and quarreling. And, and to be sure, there are some things worth fighting for as Christians. But what's more, it actually takes more courage, more virtue, more self-control to approach conflict with gentleness and humility than it ever does with a quarreling spirit. So much fighting and arguing could be avoided if we simply followed the pattern of Paul's pastoral appeal here. If we instead appeal as siblings to one another in the midst of our disagreements instead of taking offense and taking a stand. And that's the pattern that I want to follow here this morning. Please understand, I'm not coming to you any other way than, than with a posture of brotherly affection here. I, I, I love this church. And, and I don't just mean by that that I love the name Veritas, but I love you, the people that that name represents. I've poured my blood, sweat, and tears over the last several years into this community. I love this community. And I, 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 I long to see this, this church flourish in the gospel. And because of this, I take up Paul's appeal to the Corinthians this morning as my own, as my appeal to you to be a church and a people who are united in the truth of the gospel. Which brings us next to a plea to agree. Paul goes on to say this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree... And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul wants all of the Corinthians to agree. He wants us to agree. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that if a fellow member of the church comes and sits next to you and says, I think that Taco Bell is the best Mexican restaurant of all time, that, that you need to go, you know what, I agree, I concur. Please no. Um, you, that's, that, that, he's not calling us to become these kind of mindless little replicas of one another, taking the same positions and opinions on everything. That's not what Paul is saying. A more literal translation of this phrase would, would be something like this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all say the same thing. 
that you all say the same thing. And what we need to know about that, that phrase in order to understand it is that that was a particular phrase that was said of political groups in the Greco-Roman world who were of the same mind, these political parties that would come together. They were in agreement about a particular uh, philosophy or method of politics. So we might compare it today to how political parties will come up with a sort of party platform together. So Republicans, and Democrats, or whatever other party will come together and they'll create a party platform which lays out the sort of principles and goals of the party. The principles that they're going to work from and the goals that they're going to work toward. Well, similarly, Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, I want you all to have the same platform. I want you to be a single party with a single platform. I want you to say the same thing. And part of the problem, as, as, as you'll see if, if, if you read on in verses 11 through 17 here, is that they were functioning as a bunch of smaller parties. Smaller groups with different platforms based on particular ministers or preachers that they liked best. In verse 12, Paul describes this as he says to them, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's, that's the Apostle Peter, or I follow Christ. And of course, we, we, we don't know what each group was kind of standing for, but we do know that this was actually a very culturally acceptable thing to do for the Corinthians at the time. It was very common in the Greek world for uh, people to form parties or groups based on a, a particular philosopher or a certain public figure and to sort of attach themselves to these figures, taking upon themselves their, their philosophies and their views. But while that kind of partisanism was acceptable in the world at the time, Paul says it's not acceptable in Christ's church. We're not to break ourselves up into separate parties in, in the church. Rather, Paul says, there should be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. If, if, there's, if there's division among us, Paul says, you should correct it. That's what that word you translated as united means. It's the same word for when, when doctors in, in the world at that time would, would uh, put dislocated bones back into place. Or, or we see the same word used in, in Mark 1 uh, when the, uh, the disciples were mending their fishnets. It means to, to it's, a, it's a picture given to us of, of healing and mending. Healing and mender, mending division by choosing to be of the same mind and the same judgment. By agreeing. It's another way of, of, of saying what he's already said. Be a church that agrees with one another. And again, that doesn't mean that you see eye to eye on every little thing. It means that you have the same platform. It, it means that you say the same thing about the main thing. That you say the same thing about the main thing. That you have one main thing on which you agree on and have chosen to set that particular thing up as the main thing. And now what's the main thing? According to the Apostle Paul, we actually don't need to go outside of 1 Corinthians to find this. If we look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says to the Corinthians, when he was in their midst preaching and leading, he said this, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, does that, does that mean that when he preached in Corinth that all he talked about was Christ and his crucifixion? No, he obviously talked about baptism. You know, he baptized a few of them. You see if you read on. Probably talked to them about how to organize themselves as a church and what to look for in church leadership and all that. But the essence of Paul's message, the main thing, the, the, the center of it, the main thing that he talked about and, and the main thing from which everything else emanated was Christ and his cross. Why? Why? 
because that is what's of first importance for us. That's the main thing, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I deliver to you as of first importance. First importance. What's of first importance? Paul, here's what's of first importance. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the main thing. That's what's of first importance. Christ, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the forgiveness of sins that we receive at his expense. That's the main thing. That is the main thing. It's the central thing. And that's the very thing that we are united in and for as a church. That is to be our party platform. We're to say the same thing about the main thing. What unites us It's not a political party or a position on masks or the kinds of schooling that we choose for our kids or whether we have kids at all or or our race or our socioeconomic status or our age or anything else. What unites us is Christ, his person, his work, what he is for us and what he's done for us as our Savior and Lord. That is the main thing. And now let me say this. In the midst of these very divisive times, I've been so thankful for the way this church has maintained Christian unity. I've seen churches recently in whom the the storms of division have threatened to tear them apart. I've seen it. And I haven't seen that with you. And so I'm thankful. I'm well pleased. And yet, at the same time, While we haven't seen the the storms of division blow through our midst, we have seen seen some light showers and some mild breezes blow through. And to keep those from intensifying, I'd like to appeal to our church to make the right choices in this season so that we remain and even grow in being a church that declares, embodies, and displays the kingdom of God and remains and grows in being a countercultural community in this divided age. And so first, I, I, I'd appeal to you to choose the right hills to die on. Choose the right hills to die on. And so, differences, disagreements, you can go to the next slide. Disagreements, are th- these are inevitable in church life. These are inevitable when we share life together. And an important part, therefore, of Christian maturity is figuring out what hills are worth dying on versus what hills we can just willingly give up without much care. Corinthians, in their immaturity, they did not do this well. They were quarreling over matters that were not of first and primary importance or even of secondary importance. They were quarreling and dividing over matters that were not worth dividing over. We must not fall into the same trap. And to help us do this, I'd like to encourage us to do something a a theologian uh, several years ago began to write about. Uh, He encouraged Christians to do what he called triage. Triage. It's uh, triage. When we have disagreements with one another over matters of Christian belief and practice, we should do triage. We must learn to do this. And all you medical professionals, and many of you in our midst, you'll be well familiar with this concept of of triage. If you take a trip to the emergency room, you will benefit from a practice that the medical professionals there uh, practice called 
triage. It's, uh, they're, they're, they're well trained in this practice. It's a process that allows trained medical personnel to make quick evaluations of relative medical emergency. Okay, so which, which patients, they learn to treat patients in relation to the severity of what's going on. So that, you know, which patients should be rushed into surgery? Which patients can maybe wait for a less urgent examination? Who do you admit first? Do you admit first a person with a broken arm, person with a life-threatening gunshot wound, or a person with a headache? Well, obviously, you should take care of the person with the life-threatening gunshot wound. They need to be attended to first. The, regardless of whether they arrive first or not, the, the person with the broken arm, they can wait, but it's still more urgent than the person with the headache. They can just go home and take an ibuprofen. Well, similarly, when we have disagreements in our church regarding matters of belief and practice, we need to learn to do triage. Not every disagreement is an emergency. Some of them, some of our disagreements, we can simply agree to disagree and carry on sharing life together. There are, of course, some matters of Christian belief and practice that are worth fighting for. There are matters of first importance that we're willing to even die for. We're not willing to flex on Christ's death and resurrection. We're not willing to flex on that. We're not willing to flex and, and say that adultery is morally permissible. We're not willing to flex and admit unrepentant bank robbers in the membership of our church. We're not going to flex on those kinds of things. But what about a family that chooses public or private or homeschool? Do we need to separate and find different churches over that? Or what about, what about uh, drinking alcohol? Some think that drinking alcohol at all is an unwise decision. Others think that drinking alcohol in moderation is perfectly permissible. What do we do? Should we disagree? Should we get in a fight? Should we separate about those sorts of things? Or how about masks? Or, oh, how about masks? That's a very relevant one. Masks. Some people think the whole mask business is silly. Other people think that Wearing a mask is an important part of caring for your neighbor when you're in public. Should we separate? Should we get in a big church fight about that? Absolutely not. Should we argue for in, in our opinions, these kinds of opinions, in the same way that we would for, say, Christ's resurrection? Should we separate over these matters? Or should we, when disagreeing on issues of, of school preference, should we just agree to disagree and move on with our lives? Or, 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 or when it comes to drinking alcohol, wouldn't it be better if those who think it permissible just refrain from doing it or talking about it in front of those who don't think it's permissible? Or, or, or when it comes to masks, rather than, than fighting, wouldn't it be better for those who think it's silly to just wear a mask when you're around those who think it important? And please don't misunderstand. I'm, I'm not saying that, that these issues don't matter at all or that your opinions on them don't matter. I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply saying that they're not more important than the unity of the church. It's a small sacrifice to make to refrain from drinking alcohol sometimes or to wear a mask. Especially, it's a small sacrifice to make, especially when you consider the sacrifice Christ himself made to purchase church unity. Choose the right hills to die on. Next, choose your church over the internet. 
choose your church over the internet. And this may seem kind of silly, but in our day and age, the temptation is, is all too real to let the internet be more formative in your life than your church family. The temptation is all too real to be, to be more shaped by your social media algorithms than you are the people that you've covenanted with to do life together. It's, it's all too real of a temptation to be more influenced by YouTube videos and, and figures, people on social media that you'll never even meet than the flesh and blood people sitting next to you this morning. It's all too real of a temptation. And this is sometimes part of why Christians and churches struggle to live in unity because they begin to identify more with people and stuff and groups on the internet than they do the particular church family in which God has placed them. You can so easily start to, like the, the Corinthians say, I'm part of the Peterson party or the Shapiro party or the CNN party or the Fox News party or the Biden party or the Trump party or whatever else. We start to over-identify with those sorts of groups and start to see those who differ from us in our church family family as the enemy when they're not. They're actually the people with whom we have the most important thing in the world in common with. They're the people with whom we say the same thing about the main thing. They're the people with whom we are to share the same party platform and we mustn't forget that. Choose your church over the internet. Next... um, Uh, let's skip the next one and go on to the next one. Choose reconciliation over bitterness. Uh, Sometimes when we have disagreements uh, or offenses taken in our life together, we can simply tend to let it fester. And, 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 And in my experience, this is often where Factions and divisions start. Not, not purely as disagreements regarding Christian belief and practice. Not merely disagreements of doctrine or church ministry philosophy or anything along those lines. But they often begin because we're hurt and wounded by one another. And then we find matters of, of belief and practice and conviction in which we differ from others and use it, even unwittingly and unknowingly to ourselves, as an excuse to separate and divide. But instead, before it ever even gets to that point, we should pursue reconciliation. You know, the Puritans, they used to say that we should keep short accounts with one another. Should keep short accounts with one another. In other words, don't let others' sins against you or your sins against others go undealt with for very long. If you have something against someone in the church, don't let offense and bitterness build up. Do triage... Do triage, and, and, and if it's something that you should simply let go for the sake of love and overlooking offenses, Peter said, love covers a multitude of sins. There are times when we just overlook one another's sins. But other times, if it's serious enough, we need to go confront this brother or sister about it. Don't hold on to it for very long. Or if you know that someone has something against you, don't let it go for too long. Go to them as soon as you can and work it out. Choose reconciliation over bitterness. It's essential to church unity. And then lastly, keep, choose to keep Christ central in everything. Everything. Let Jesus Christ, crucified and raised for you, be the central thing in your individual lives and in your common life together. 
Let it be your deepest joy, your greatest boast, your biggest hope, your most passionate song. Let Christ be what most deeply and profoundly defines you as individuals and as a community. Let it be what unites you as brothers and sisters and what sends you together on Christ's mission. Let Christ be exalted over everything else in your life, even over every other good thing in your life. Let Christ be exalted above it all, over everything in your life. Like the Apostle Paul, as he was in Corinth, may be said of us that we know nothing else except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. May it be said of Veritas Community Church that what is of first importance is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Let that be the main thing. And really, friends, when you consider the profundity of that message, the beauty and the excellence of Christ, the astounding nature of what he's done for us, when you consider the heart of Christ toward us as sinners, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that while we were still his enemies, he laid down his life for us. Consider the greatness of his love for you. Why on earth would we let anything else take center stage? Why on earth would we let anything else distract us from something so stunning, so dazzling, so ravishing when we have something so immense in common? Why would we let any issue, any other issue at all, any issue of opinion or conscience separate us? It would be scandalous to not keep Christ the main thing when his glories and his excellencies so demand that he be the main thing. My friends, I appeal to you this morning. Say the same thing about the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. And in so doing, maintain church unity in these divided times. Our platform is Christ and him crucified. May we know nothing else. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have given us Christ, the beautiful one, the excellent one, the glorious one, that you have given us him in his incarnation, that you have given us him in his passion, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, that you have seated us with him in the heavenly places. And as you have placed us in him, also placed us in one another as we are commonly in him. And may that new position that you've given us in Christ, that you've given us in Christ, may that new position also be experienced in our midst as we enjoy church unity together. Help us to choose the right hills to die on. Help us to choose reconciliation over bitterness. Help us to choose our church over the internet. Help us to choose to keep Christ central in everything. Help us to have the same party platform, to say the same thing about the main thing, to know nothing other than Christ and him crucified. May that be so of us. And so we pray in humble dependence upon you and in desperate need the power and presence of the Holy Spirit.
Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.